minimalists. <laughs> all right, Ryan, let's do this thing. All right, man. All right, so um, you all, uh, thank you for being a Patreon supporter. This is live stream 10, take two. Now, many of you joined us for the live broadcast last week. We did live stream 10, and we got to interact with you. And then the video just disappeared into the ether. It didn't upload, and so we're back recording it. But I actually screwed something up. So this is a good opportunity for us to remedy that screw-up. Uh, the, the questions we answered, they're still recorded on audio, so we'll release the audio to those questions that we, that we did answer. But we answered some of the wrong questions. They weren't the most popular questions, they were just the most recent questions. And so I printed off the wrong ones. And so now we have the most popular questions from this month's live stream, the, the questions that you, you submitted to Ask the Minimalists Anything on Patreon. So we're gonna, this gives us the perfect opportunity to answer those. And then going forward, as I wrote in the email to you all, uh, we're not going to live broadcast the live streams anymore. We're still going to record and answer your questions, do a monthly Ask the Minimalists Anything on video and upload the video. But uh, because we're branching out and doing more video stuff, we're going to improve the video quality because the truth is that very few people watch the, the live streams and we did them. Yeah, I was going to say, there's going to be three people who are really disappointed that we're not going <laughs> to do the live streams now. Yeah, so hundreds of people would actually watch the video after it was broadcast, but right. during the live broadcast, like, they're like, you know, I'm not skipping work to watch this. Right, whatever. and the live broadcast, I mean, to me, like, the whole point of it is so we can be interactive with the people who are watching the live broadcast, but, you know, in addition to there not being as many people there to interact with, uh, there's no interaction going on between us with the broadcast, so this makes more sense, and that way you guys are going to get much better quality. Yeah, yes indeed, and uh, we don't have podcast Sean here today, but we're recording on a, uh, a mic attached to, to the phone that we're recording on here, so hopefully the audio from this will be good enough to put in the stream as well, so you can check that out on the Minimalist Private Podcast, and also the audio if you missed the last, because I felt really good about the the uh, questions that we did answer, they just weren't the most popular questions. Yeah, they were, yeah, they were great questions. We'll just get around to... They're all great questions. It's just, you know, it's hard to, like, just pick four. So going by the most popular, I think, is probably the, the easiest. All well, right, should we get into it? They're not all great questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, Ben Robinson says, how do you both define work-life balance? And have either of you come across the book Goodbye Things? Uh, so, Goodbye Things is a book that is uh, from a, a Japanese minimalist. In fact, our uh, director friend, Matt Diavella, he is the director of our documentary, Minimalism. He did a panel with him, I believe in New York, um, right around when our documentary came out. And Goodbye Things addresses the, the sort of material side. The, Who's the other? I'm sorry. Uh, his name is uh, Fumio... Uh, Sasaki. Sasaki, yeah. Gotcha. And... Um, he, I, I have read, I, in fact, I own a copy of Goodbye Things, and it does a good job of showing the, the minimalist perspective, um, the Japanese minimalist perspective in particular, of uh, the material side. It's very much the, the what side of things, mm. but also keeping in mind, uh, it, it delves a little bit into the, the, the why, the purpose side, and, uh, of course, the benefits uh, uh, of how, uh, once you've simplified, how you do that. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good primer if you're trying to figure out the, uh, the material side of minimalism. And then in terms of work-life balance, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I think work-life balance is a bit overrated. I think work-life balance presupposes that we have these two different sides. We have this, yeah. I have... Uh, I have my work life, I have my personal life, and... And they're not allowed to interact. They're two separate things, and yeah. And for me, for the longest time, I had these two separate things where, in fact, my my personal life, I, I sort of hid 
from my professional life and vi- vice versa. Like, mm. I refused to let them touch. It was like, as a kid, when you won't let the, the peas touch your mashed potatoes on the plate, <laughs> that was sort of my life for the longest time. Mm. Uh, I, I believe in work-life integration. And, and what that really means is setting our priorities straight. And so uh, I no longer have to have work-life balance if what I do I find meaningful. It doesn't mean I always find it enjoyable. I, I don't always find it pleasurable. Uh, in fact, we often confuse pleasure with true passion. The opposite is, is often true. Uh, passion and meaning requires a lot of drudgery, a lot of hard work, uh, uh, a lot of discomfort, and sometimes some pain. And so work-life integration means setting my priorities straight, making sure my health is, is in order, my creativity. Uh, when we think of work, we often think about the creative side of things. Mm-hmm. So it's not like having a creative life and then having a relationship life. Mm. I mean, you and I are best friends. We create things together. It's that work-life integration as, a fo- as opposed to finding balancing these separate parts like it's a teeter-totter. Yeah. No, it's, this question makes me think of that. that uh, I think it's a Beatles song. There is a season turned. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about, That was right? Tom York, right? <laughs> yes. I don't get Radiohead anymore, man. <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I really do think about that song because there is a season, there is a time to work, there is a time to play, there is a time to create, there is a time to uh, consume. I mean, there, there are these uh, things that we do have to maybe put on a different face for, like... You know, um, I think of a teacher, mm. right? There's going to have to be some kind of balance there. Like, you don't want to bring your personal life to all of your students, right. good or bad. You've got to be able to create that, uh, you know, professional barrier, uh, teacher does, between them and their students. So I think there is there is this this balance of, of work and life that we sometimes um, have to do. But I think where it becomes problematic is when we are a completely different person uh, at, at two different points. So what I mean by that is, is if at work... If I am portraying myself as someone with good morals and someone who is, you know, an upstanding citizen and uh, looking out for other people and and really in my personal life, I am someone who is, you know, trolling on the Internet and uh, I don't live up to any of those expectations that I set with with my coworkers and I'm really kind of leading this this double life. I think that is really where it can be problematic. Mm. And I think that people who are asking this question of man, work life balance um, you know, I, I, I don't want to take my, my work home with me because, uh, you know, it forces me to, to work too much during the week. I think that's really where this question comes from is, is, uh, how can I, how can I have a personal life and enjoy my life, but then also, uh, find a time to work. So, um, in, in that scenario, yeah, like if you are not able, if you are not able to leave your work at work, um, Going back to the teacher example, there yeah. are some teachers, man, who uh, they are so overloaded with grading papers. They're so overloaded with teacher conferences. They're so overloaded with bad students, and they got to meet with the parents outside of school. Uh, there might be a point where, yeah, you have to look at your priorities. You got to look at your values and beliefs, and ask yourself: Is what I'm doing for a living, the way I'm making money, is it allowing me to still be in alignment with my values and beliefs? So if you have to live two separate lives, if you have to, uh, you know, work 40 hours a week at your office and then 40 hours a week at home, um, that would be living outside of your values and beliefs. Yeah, I think that you absolutely need to find a balance somewhere. But, but ultimately, I totally agree with what Josh said. If you could find something that you really believe in, again, going back to being a teacher, like I, I think about often, man, if we ever had the rug swept out from underneath of us 
and I couldn't go work at the coffee shop. I always think about if I had to go back to the professional world, what would I do? And I probably would be a teacher because mm. it would be so rewarding. Now, for me, I know there are, is that extra stuff you got to bring home with you, but to me, it'd be worth it. That's well, the price I mean, of admission. Yeah, from the, from the outside looking, and I've never actually been a teacher, but you know, from the outside looking in, it feels to me like it would be worth it to go in there and have uh, you know some great influence and to be a good role model for kids. And yes, it is the price of admission for being a teacher. It is the price of admission for having that that role model role. Uh, with other students. So the question is, is like, do I really, not do I really want it as much as is, does it really align with my, my values and beliefs? Because sometimes we do want something so bad mm. that we do compromise our values and yeah. beliefs to yeah. get it. And that's really where we can fall into uh, fall into a trap. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. I think that's the problem with the work-life balancing. It's true, yeah, I definitely have a, a private life. I don't have a different personal versus professional life. I do have a private life, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not... Uh, filming me having sex and then posting it online. Um, <laughs> well, you're not doing the last half of that. <laughs> and posting it online. Um, and, and, and the reason being, it doesn't serve the greater good in any way, right? right? And so, like, yeah, a teacher who, who shows up and decides, I'm just going to spew all this nonsense because my personal life is in shambles, but one thing I can control, and, and I know I face this, like, Everything else around, my, my professional life was great, even though everything else was in shambles because I, I just put all my eggs in that basket. That's mm. not priori- prioritization either. That's just saying screw everything else. You're forsaking. That's not treating the important things as a priority. Yeah. That's discarding them. You're forsaking your health, your relationships, yeah. what, you, the things that you're passionate about. Yeah. Uh, there's no room for cultivating passion there. Yeah. You're- yeah. And, and so uh, along that path, I, I feel like there are private things that I will share from time to time if it serves the greater good. Like if, if in your teacher analogy there, if the teacher shows up and a kid is going through a problem and the, the, the teacher has gone through something similar in their lives and they're able to share a story of overcoming adversity, then that, that's a time when sharing a struggle actually helps other people. If you just go in there and say, ah, my life is suck, my suck, you know, my, my life sucks, my carburetor just broke in my old car and uh, uh, I can't pay my rent this month, like you having all these problems, that doesn't help anyone, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, work-life integration really has to do with finding something that is meaningful for you and figuring out ways that you, you can maximize that meaning through prioritization. Our next question is from Kevin Shepard. Kevin says, it seems like both of you are living more ethic- ethically now uh, than you were before uh, finding minimalism. It almost seems as if ethics and morals are built into minimalism somehow, but it's not obvious to me how. I'd like to hear your thoughts on how ethical principles like lying, cheating, stealing, overindulging, and needlessly harming other beings fits into your system of minimalism. Mm. I, I don't think it does. I don't think I don't think a hammer is 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 necessarily ethical, right? You can do ethical things with that ham- hammer. It's a tool. I can also bludgeon Ryan to death with that hammer. That is not ethical. Minimalism for me is a tool. It cleared the the clutter out of my life, and it continues to keep that that path clear, so I can live a more meaningful life. But I there are examples of people who are minimalist. I think of Steve Jobs, who was a great creator and really brilliant, but it also he was a total dick to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can be a true asshole and still be a, <laughs> a minimalist, right? Yeah. And so you, just because you're a minimalist doesn't mean you're necessarily going to behave ethically, although I think it opens up the framework for you to realize that it is easier to live a, uh, a meaningful life if 
you are being ethical, if you are, are living uh, within your morals. There's a good book about this called The Moral Landscape by, by Sam Harris. And so I don't think there is one particular peak of, of ultimate morality. I think there are different peaks. There are, there are, there are different peaks and valleys of, uh, of moral right and wrong. We can all agree that honesty is a good thing. Uh, and lying is a bad thing, right? Uh, but then what is the level of radical honesty that is necessary in your life? It's gonna, that's gonna vary for each of us. Again, radical honesty would, or, and complete transparency, I would just get on here and give you my social security number. That's honest. But that doesn't serve the greater good. There's no purpose for me to do that. And so when I think about morality, Ryan, I, I think about living a meaningful life. When I think about all these principles that Kevin talked about here, mm-hmm. not lying, not cheating, not stealing, not overindulging. I think maybe overindulging is embedded in minimalism. That's part of the tool. But everything else is sort of, you, you, you come to that after the fact. At least I did. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that minimalism for me helps me live a genuine life. And my, you know, at my genuine core, I'm a moral person. I am an, I have, I have, uh, you know, good ethics or what people would see as good ethics. Um, I think that it's funny because I could totally go down the rabbit hole of, you know, what actually is moral, what isn't moral. Because something moral to me may not be moral to someone else. But ultimately, minimalism helps you be you. It helps you live up to the best version of yourself. And it just so happens Josh and I are very, very ethical. I agree. I don't think ethics are built into minimalism, but I, I do like to believe though that most people out there in the world are pretty ethical. Like they are looking out for other people. Mm. Um, I, I think most people are good at, at the core and I think minimalism helps you get to that. Yeah. Most people aren't sociopaths. And, and, or, or, and so uh, once you realize you, you, you've stripped away this excess, this overindulgence, all of a sudden you realize like, Oh, there's a better way to do this thing mm. called life. Yeah. Our next question is from Judith Hallman. Judith says, where do I start getting into good habits when I have so many areas of my life where I want to improve? I'm going to make sure it's still recording while you go for it. This. Judith, you know, this is your, in your question is kind of, I think the, the problem that you're facing here is that you were looking at all of the areas at once where you need to improve. That is for me. There, there might be someone out there, Josh has got a way, way uh, uh, wider, larger bandwidth than I do. So maybe, maybe he, he would approach something like that, although I don't think he would. But for me, if I was to sit here and think about all the things I wanted to change right now, and then expected myself to act today, or even starting tomorrow on changing all those things, I would fail very, very quickly. Like when I think about this like health journey that I've kind of been on the last like five, six, seven, eight years... It started with me, like I really wanted to exercise, I really wanted to eat well, I I wanted to live a healthy lifestyle, and when I approached it from every aspect, oh, I want to go to the gym, I want to uh, make sure that I have a good diet, and I want to make sure to get out on the weekends and and go hiking and, and get out in nature, like when I tried to do all three of those things at once, I just ended up like letting myself down all the time. And where I really started to find leverage is when I kind of removed these three objectives off my plate and I just took one and set it on my plate. So for me, it started out with going to the gym and it wasn't until I started to have a really, really good gym habit. Um, I, I didn't really start to have a good, a good diet, uh, until I got that, uh, that regularity of going to the gym. So once Mariah and I found ourselves going to the gym four or five, six days a week, well, 
it was really easy to then kind of incorporate our diet because then I started to look at things like, oh, wow, like going to the gym, I'm putting all this work in. I want to get some really good results. Mm. Like, man, how can I get better results with this? Man, yeah. if I change my diet up a little bit, I could probably get some better results. And it starts compounding after a right. while. So then I, so from working out, having that regular routine, I was able to use uh, that, that, that really good habit that I had incorporated in my life as a leverage to incorporate another good habit. So for you, Judith, I, I would recommend just choose one thing. And here's the thing. There's really not one right thing that you can choose. When I talk to my mentoring students, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, some mentoring students, they like to start with the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. They like to say, you know what? I'm going to cut sugar out tomorrow and I'm never going to eat sugar again. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's totally plausible to do that. Uh, for some people, I, I've seen people do that. Um, other people are like, you know what? I'm just going to start trying to get to bed by 10 p.m. And I'm just going to start there. And, and so, you know, you've got this really difficult thing you can start with. you got this really easy thing that you can start with. Judith and anyone else out there depends on what is going to be the best approach for you. Do you want to start with a really, really hard thing like me? I, I had a packing party, so I obviously like to start with the unconventional, unconventional uh, difficult things. That's because I like to change my state. I think mm-hmm. that's the best way to like get me motivated to, to live a different life uh, or to help inspire myself or to help me stay motivated. Um, but that's me. Uh, Judith, what is it going to be for you? Is it starting with the really hard thing or the really small thing? Regardless, you do have to choose one thing to start with. Yeah, I think what's nice about either approach, you, you, if you start with something big and you, and you just isolate that and focus on the one thing, it allows you to put all your effort in that. Yeah. And, and you can tackle that big thing. Or if you start with the small things, you get a bunch of little small victories. You, and, 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 and I think great success is built upon a bunch of small victories. I just wrote that essay recently called Small Losses. You can find it at our, our website. Uh, theminimalists.com slash losses and uh, uh, also acknowledge those losses that you have in your life too if, if you are trying to change your diet per se and you just ate a piece of chocolate cake last night realize that's a, that, that is a small loss and, and we need to be able to scorn ourselves appropriately not beat ourselves up repeatedly but say you know what that was wrong of me to do that here's what I'm trying to change and you build the, the instead of uh, having an amalgamation of all of these just losses and focus on the losses, you focus on the wins and the losses and make sure your win-loss ratio continues to improve, right? It's like building the house. When you, you, you build the foundation on whatever the, the first thing is, exercising, and then you, you put diet on top of that, you put sleep on top of that. And so whenever you're developing a plan, I, I talk about this in detail on the podcast that's coming out this week. Called, it's about intentionality. And uh, 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 plan requires four things. Where are you going? Where are you at right now? And then how do you bridge the gap? There's two things there. Uh, time and action. How long is it going to take for you to improve your exercise habit? For most people, it can be done within a month. Doesn't mean you're going to completely have the full body transformation in a month. You've changed the habit within a month. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're going to the gym four days a week. That's the thing you focus on a month. And, and then from there, you change the next thing. You build the next layer. Once you've established that habit, you add the next thing. And then if you want faster results, well, then you you take more action to have a smaller amount of time. So check out that podcast. And the last thing I'll say is check out the postscript to that podcast as well. We talked about some analogies on raising your standards and lowering your expectations. One of the things I think Judith needs to do, and you'll find this in the postscript episode to the intentional podcast. Um, I think you need to raise your standards and lower your expectations. Yeah. Right now you have a lot of expectations. Let's get rid of those and we go into detail on how to do that on the postscript episode. Yeah, so an example of that, just to expound on on lower your standard I'm sorry, lower your expectations, raise your standards. Um, going to the gym every day. That is raising your standard. 
expecting yourself to have that, you know, six pack abs within six weeks of exercising, or in fact, having the expectation of having six pack abs period of working out, that is a very high expectation. Hmm. So uh, don't, don't expect these crazy, crazy results. You will get crazy, awesome results if you raise your standards, yeah. regardless of what your expectations, regardless is. of what your expectations are. For sure. Maria says, we recently moved to a beautiful and expensive town. So did we, <laughs> um, w- with an amazing school system. We can totally afford it. However, our house is not big, and we still drive a 2007 Toyota Camry. Ryan, that's laugh of luxury compared to what that's you right, have. That's right, man. I wish I had a 2007 Toyota Camry. Uh, we travel a lot and invest uh, for retirement, but keeping up with the Joneses is not our thing. How do we explain this to our tweens when their friends have overabundance? They can't understand why we would not want a bigger house or a better car. I think I think ultimately you explain it through your actions, yeah. and I don't mean through your actions of driving the, the 2007 Camry. Clearly, that doesn't matter to you, but you show them what does matter to you, the experiences that matter to you, the community involvement that matters to you, the getting outside of your your, your comfort zone, getting into your discomfort zone, why that matters to you and why that makes your life better, explaining those things. And, and then you realize very quickly, like you're, you're giving up these superficial things. Mm. And it's much easier to realize that when the other things are going really well. Yeah. You know, you don't want to look cheap to your kids, right? I mean, uh, frugality, I think can, and, and maybe it does go hand in hand with minimalism, but being a minimalist doesn't mean just, just being cheap. So uh, don't let your kids think you're just being cheap. If you are driving that 2007 Camry around so you don't have a car payment and so you can save, you know, with that $500 a month car payment that you would have and save that each month and at the end of the year you got 6000 bucks and you go on a family vacation, well, that's the time to tell your kids, hey, look, we were able to go on this vacation because I don't drive a brand new 2018 Bentley. And because I don't have that, that crazy car payment, we were able to save as a family to go on this amazing trip and have this amazing experience. Yeah. So different ways, uh, find different ways to show your children uh, the, the, the reasons why you want to save money, but, but the, the advantages, the, the, the benefits to why you're driving a 2007 Camry, to why you have a smaller place. What are the benefits there? If it is, uh, even if it's retirement, pl- explain that to your kids. Hey, you know what? Uh, yeah, we don't have a, a brand new car. We don't have a huge house. And that is because we are planning for the future. And here's how your mom and I, or here's how your dad and I uh, are, 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 are planning for the future and lay out that plan for them. I mean, this is a perfect opportunity to, to teach your kids uh, some really good habits that, that will carry through when, once they graduate high school, once they graduate college, if they're going to uh, go through that. Um, these are things that if you can if you can ingrain in them now at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, I know my dad, he always ingrained into me. Now, I wasn't always great at this, but he was very good at like always telling me like, hey, man, um, I have one credit card. Uh, son, I've got one credit card and I pay that credit card off every single month. Now, I do that now. Um, I, I wasn't so good at that, you know, in my, my early 20s, mid 20s, but it's something that once it started to get out of control and, and, and with the help of, of, of uh, you know, becoming a minimalist, um, I was able to now, you know, incorporate that habit into my life. But my point, the, the point is, is that my dad is the one who 
planted, he seeded that thought into my mind and it was very easy for me to recall. And it was very easy for me to, you know, not just recall the advice, but to recall the example, the actions that he took, um, that I was able to apply uh, to my own life. So, you know, use, use these, use these, uh, experiences that you're learning to translate, to transfer to your kids, man. They're going to, they're going to really thank you in the future for it. I know I appreciate my dad, uh, giving me that one little thing, many other things too. It's not just that he taught me. Well, I think it's, what's interesting about that is, uh, the other lesson that you'll learn is you can teach and instill these habits, but sometimes they're going to fail. They're going to step out on their own. They're going to say, well, you're wrong. and I've got the right answer. Or even though there's, there's decades or centuries or millennia of empirical evidence to the contrary, I'm the smartest 17 year old in the world. And thus I know everything and I'm going to go find out for myself. But by providing that baseline, you're allowing them to fail and have a place to come back to when they do fail. Yeah. And, and it doesn't mean it's going to happen all the time. Hopefully, you're able to instill enough good habits uh, and, and uh, well, via these experiences, really, that they don't stray too far from the baseline. But when they do, they also know they have a place to, to come back to. You, you've set up that groove in their life, and it's a place where the water will flow once again. Our last question is from Sarah. Sarah says, uh, hi, I'm from Belgium. First of all, thank you guys. You're welcome. Uh, my, my biggest issue until now is my TV slash Netflix watching habits. It is a way for me to pacify myself, but also a way of procrastinating bigger and smaller things I actually would rather like to do. Reading, exercising, etc. For as long as I can remember, I feel like a day is not complete without an hour or two of TV watching. Sometimes a bad day I, sometimes on a bad day, I watch TV most of the day. Do you have any insights on how I can slowly change this need or dependence I have toward watching TV as a daily pacifier? Two things. Uh, one is I removed TV from my life for nine years. That wasn't intentional. I, moved in, I, I got uh, my divorce and I, was, uh, I moved into a new apartment. There was a big uh, bracket on the wall for a TV and I decided I'm not going to buy a TV right now. I'd rather do something else with that time. I think you could do something with your TV right now. You can hide it. You can put it in a closet. You can, one of the few times I advocate renting a storage locker to hide your TV, right? For a temporary period of time, 30 days or something, right? Letting go of that helps you reset uh, the, the, and realize like, how am I going to better spend this time? Now it's going to be lonely at first and you're going to go toward your phone. So you might have to do, you have to set up other rules for your phone or your home internet, but unplugging from these things, both figuratively and literally, allows you to realize how much you're actually spending, how much time and attention and effort you're spending on that, and how much of that you're forsaking that you could be put toward more creative things that aren't con consumption-based. So if you want to create more and consume less, for many years I was an aspiring writer. I aspired all the time, but it was really hard. Writers don't like writing, they like having written. And so what you're talking about here is maybe you don't love exercising or reading when you're in the moment until you like get to the process of, of being able to enjoy it and going through the initial drudgery of that. In order to do that, you got to get the pacifier out of the way. And then when you bring the pacifier back in, you'll find ways to use it more intentionally, ways that will add value to your life. The thing that I tend to do is schedule the viewing in advance. For you, what I would recommend is scheduling things at least a week in advance and set a hard cap on the number of hours you're going to spend on TV a week. Maybe it's two hours. That's what it usually is for me, unless it's basketball season, uh, playoff season rather. And so 
Uh, for me, I'm, I, I watch a little bit more now because of the playoffs. But uh, I've, I already know when that is. So it's, it's pre-established and I set it up. And by the way, if there's something that is a greater priority for me, then that will still take precedence over the, the basketball game or the TV show I want to watch. So maybe it's two hours, maybe it's five hours a week, whatever works best for you. But then don't deviate from that. Don't allow yourself, if it's not on your calendar, to watch that TV show. Yeah. I'll just echo what Josh said. Set boundaries. And Sarah, if you can't follow your boundaries, get rid of the TV. Yeah. I don't have ice cream in my house because I have no boundaries when it comes to ice cream. Great point. I try to set, I try to set boundaries, but if I got a pint of ice cream in my, in my house, it's going to be gone. And I'm going to really feel bad about myself. So I don't have ice cream in my house. Uh, maybe TV is your ice cream, Sarah. Uh, if that's the case, it's okay to get rid of it. No one's going to judge you for not having a TV. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, yeah, set some boundaries. Follow those boundaries. Um, and as Tony Robbins will say, if your plan isn't working, you, you got to change your approach. Yeah. Let's go get some ice cream. Let's do it. See you guys. Bye. The Minimalists. <laughs>